Well, there is a big difference between knowing a lot about someone and then knowing someone as a friend. One of my favorite athletes growing up was a pitcher for the Texas Rangers in the 1980s and 90s, early 90s, and his name was Nolan Ryan. And I know a decent a bit about Nolan Ryan. I can tell you he's the all-time leader in no-hitters with seven, and that's three more than any other pitcher. I know where he's from, Alvin, Texas. I know his nickname, the Ryan Express. And I know that he consistently threw pitches over 100 miles per hour throughout his 27-year pitching career in the majors. But I don't really know Nolan Ryan. I don't know much about his personality. I don't know what he's like at home. I don't know what type of dad or husband he is. I've got no clue what makes him happy. Strangely enough, he's never texted me. We've never hung out. He's never confided in me. Basically, I know lots about Ryan, but I don't know Ryan as a friend. Now, maybe you're like, well, of course you don't know Nolan Ryan. I mean, he's kind of a big deal, and you're kind of, you're kind of just you. And you'd be right. There's nothing in particular that commends Nolan and I to a friendship. This morning, I actually haven't come to ask you to weep with me over my non-existent friendship with Nolan Ryan. I want to talk to you about Jesus Christ. And I want to ask you, do you know him? Not do you know him as in do you know things about him, but do you know him as your friend? Here's what I want you to know this morning. You think Nolan Ryan's a big deal? LeBron James is a big deal. Dak Prescott is a big deal. Jesus Christ is the biggest deal ever. There is no one in the history of mankind who is a bigger deal. And yet, He has gone to great lengths to make you His friend. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, my hope is twofold. Number one, that you'd come to know who he is and what he's done. And number two, that you'd receive his friendship. And then to my brothers and sisters, my fellow Christians, my hope for you is that you would strengthen and deepen and sweeten your friendship with Jesus this morning. So we're in a series on the Trinity. Unless you've been sleeping this morning, you know that. Uh, The Trinity is the biblical truth that there is only one God, and this one God exists eternally in three persons, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Two weeks ago, I gave an intro to this doctrine. Last week, we looked at the person of the Father. Today, we will look at the person of the Son. Next week, we'll look at the person of the Spirit, and I've got two points for you this morning. Number one... 
Who is the Son? And number two, how should we respond to him? Let's just turn to the first. And you might be helped if you follow along in the bulletin outline there. Who is he? Who is he? And right off the bat, what we see is that he is a huge deal. Why do I say that? Because he's the God-man. I want to break that down. He is God. The Son is fully God. What do I mean? I mean that the Son is no less God than the Father is God. The Son and the Father are both fully God. When you think of believing in God, included in that should be the Son of God because the Son of God is God. So, for example, the Son existed from all eternity. There is no time when the Son was not. When we think about eternity in the past, it it did not begin with the Father existing alone and then he brought forth the Son. No, the Son has always been because in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2. I I know you know that verse. and, And I know that you know, of course, from later in the chapter in John, that the Word is God the Son. And so God the Son was in the beginning with God the Father. The Son was not ever not beside the Father. Did I get negatives mixed up there? I'm just saying the Son was always there. There was never a time... There was never a time when the Son was not. The Son is eternal, eternally God. And yet in time, Galatians 4 says, in the fullness of time, the eternal God became a man. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. Isaiah 9, 6. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Matthew 1. Who is Jesus? That is the age-old question, even today in our world that kind of wants to take the trappings of Christianity, put them in a cardboard box, put it in some storage shed, never to be seen again. That question still comes up. It's still on every ma- on some major magazine, on every Christmas and Easter. It, it, there's, there's the title line that says, who is Jesus? Who is he? He is the eternal God. Who became a man. He is God the Son who knew no beginning, who took on flesh. He is God 
and man. Here's a simple way to put it. Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Here's how the Chalcedonian Creed puts it. By the way, read that again and again and study it. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, the same perfect in Godhead and perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man. Pause for a moment and consider just how great Jesus is. He is not just a teacher, although he certainly was a great teacher. He is not just an impressive leader, although he's certainly an impressive leader. He is not just a miracle worker or a healer. He is God himself. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. John 14, 9. It should shock us then to find out that this man is not only great, he is gracious. So have you ever known someone, let's just say a public personality, They appear as something. You have an image of what you think their life based upon, what you think they're like based upon their life as portrayed whenever it's being captured for us to see. But, but come off, but, but come to find out off camera, they're totally different. Well, what's Jesus really like? Let me give it to you in a word. He's gracious. What do I mean when I talk about gracious? That's actually a word that we just kind of throw around as Christians. We call it, it, it's Christian ease, uh, the language that we as Christians use, and sometimes we don't even know what we mean. Well, what do we mean when we say something is gracious? Or, or what do we mean when we just talk about grace? John Owen points out three uses of the word. First, he talks about how grace can refer to someone's personal presence or appearance, We might say so-and-so conducts himself with grace, meaning he's poised, attractive, controlled. Second, grace could refer to our experience of unearned favor and acceptance. This is its use in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace there is is unearned favor. And then third, grace can refer to support, help, guidance that we receive as a benefit of our salvation. I think about Paul's thorn in his side, which was almost certainly some kind of suffering and affliction. He asked the Lord, please take it from me. He asked three times, in fact. And do you remember what the Lord said to him? My grace is sufficient for you. My help, my support, my guidance is sufficient for you. Now, when we think about Jesus, he is gracious in all three of these ways. First of all, he's gracious as a person. 
Now, when I say this, I actually don't mean that he's lovely in terms of physical presence or appearance. In fact, if you look at the Bible, what you find out is that apparently Jesus was not an attractive man. When I say he's gracious as a person, what I mean is that when we watch him and we see how he carries himself towards sinners, he is so attractive because he's not repulsed by anyone. A woman, serial adulteress, and married to five different men, currently sleeping with another man, Jesus sits down beside her and talks to her. That is shocking enough. But what's the conversation? What does he actually say? What's the substance of what they talk about? Well, through this metaphor of water from a well, they were sitting by a well, he offers to cleanse her and to satisfy her soul. You see, she had made this mess of herself, looking everywhere for love and acceptance and and not finding it. And Jesus says to her, what you're looking for is ultimately and only found in me. The love of the Father poured out through me is the only way that you will be satisfied and, and I can give this to you. I can forgive you and I can, I can cleanse your conscience and, and you can find acceptance in the Father's love through me. Another woman, likely very similar in her immorality as the first, she comes into where Jesus is with he and his disciples and other onlookers, and she pours expensive ointment all over his feet. Have you ever been in a social setting where somebody just gets weird fast? (laughs) That's this. And onlookers are just horrified, and they're they're saying to themselves, "If, if he knew what type of woman this was, he... He wouldn't be letting her do this. But he knew. He knew, all right. And why did he let her? Because in his words, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Over and over, we see that Jesus' heart, it just goes out to sinners. Over and over, what we see is that his private persona is even more shockingly wonderful than his public persona. This is a man who wants to rescue lost people who are so far from God. And every type of lost person, he wants to rescue the blatantly bad. He is not repulsed by significant sin, as we've seen in these examples. Sexual immorality, sexual perversion, abortion, alcoholism, transgenderism. Jesus doesn't stand at a distance towards these type of sinners. He he wants to rescue these sinners. And he wants to rescue what I'd call the morally bad In the Gospels, he offers himself continually to proud and relatively upright people who actually don't think they have any problem with God. 
the older brother and the, the parable of the prodigal. Quick pause, by the way. Let me just tell you, as far as sheer numbers go, this group, the morally bad group, is a far bigger amount of people than the first group. This, this group is, is community volunteers. This group is, is hard workers. This group is, is moms and dads who, who try to do right to their spouses and kids. This group is, is upright people in general. This group is the people we'd say, hey, that's a good person. But the problem with upright people is that you think you're okay with God. You think, you know what, if I am a sinner, and I'm not totally convinced I'm a sinner, but if I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm certainly not a very bad sinner. But that's just because you're comparing yourself with a bad group. <laughs> if you really knew how holy and just God is, you'd fall on your face and ask for mercy. By the way, just another Side note, how do you know if this is you, if you're the morally bad? Well, two thoughts for you. If you get offended at the idea that you deserve the judgment of God, you're in this category. If you get offended at the idea that you deserve the judgment of God, you're in this category. And another one, if you get offended at the idea of God being merciful to the really bad people, and the people that you don't like, and the people that you think are responsible for everything wrong in the world, if you get offended at God's mercy towards them, you're part of this group too. Nonetheless, Jesus has mercy for you. You prideful ones. To both groups, both blatant sinners and moral upright sinners, Jesus says, come to me. I want you to come to my Father's house. I want you to know my Father's love. My love is an expression of His love. My invitation to forgiveness is an expression of His invitation to forgiveness. Please come. You know, if Nolan Ryan called me up and invited me over for brisket and beans, I would know one of you is pranking me. <laughs> but Jesus Christ, the God-man, he does so much more. He came, the Bible says, to seek and to save the lost. That's who he is. He is gracious in his person. Right? He is gracious in his person. Not physically beautiful, but spiritually more beautiful than we can possibly imagine. He's also gracious in his work. And when I talk about his work, what I mean is what he accomplished for us by his death and resurrection. Three truths. Number one, by his work, he frees us from sin's penalty. You know, there's something that in general nobody likes to talk about, and it's our sin and the penalty for our sin. What is sin? Sin is breaking God's law. 
What is the penalty of our sin? It's death. And death isn't just physical. Death is separation from God eternally in hell. Further, and most uncomfortably, the Bible tells us that we have all sinned and we all deserve the penalty of sin because our selfishness, lust, anger, judgmentalism, materialism, and general arc of life towards ourselves instead of God and his glory all alienate us from a perfectly holy and loving God. So what that means is that in order for us to be accepted by him, we actually need the stink and filth of sin washed off of us. God has a legitimate beef with us. And there is nothing that we can do unless someone takes away the cause of offense. Enter Jesus. This is exactly what he did by his death and resurrection. On the cross, he took the penalty of our sin upon himself and he paid the price for our forgiveness and freedom. As a result of this, God has nothing against anyone who is in Christ by faith. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. And you, all of you, were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. God made alive together with him. Having forgiven you, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to his cross. That's incredible. And that is what Jesus' work has accomplished for us. He has freed us from the penalty of our sin. He has paid the price for our sin. It's the old hymn that we sing. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. This is incredible. And there's more. Jesus not only saves us from sin's penalty, Jesus saves us from sin's power. So when you are a non-Christian, if you are a non-Christian, you, you didn't have any power over sin. Now, what I mean by that is, is that not that you were as sinful as you could have been. I don't mean by that that you never said no to something bad. What I mean is that sin was your master, you were under its authority, but Jesus, in his death and resurrection, he not only frees you from the penalty and that you deserve because of your sin, he also frees you from the dominating power of that sin, and he actually makes you holy in real time, in real life, for all to see. Now, do you know how he does this? I'm glad you asked. You're an inquisitive bunch this morning. Number one, he sends the Holy Spirit to dwell in you. You know why the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Spirit? Because he's holy and he produces holiness in his people. The Spirit is the one who brings about in you greater growth in godliness. As the Spirit lives in you, 
He transforms you such that you think and speak and act more and more like the one who gave him to you, Jesus. The other way he frees you from the power of sin is by giving you what the Bible describes as a new heart. Now, when we talk about the heart, we're actually not referring to the ticker, but the very center and core of who you are. So before faith in Jesus Christ, what was natural to you, what was just given to you, your general approach to life was not godliness and holiness. It was godlessness and immorality, but by virtue of his death and resurrection through faith in him, Jesus gives you this new heart, this new nature. When I was growing up, my mom told me that, um, she said, your taste buds will change something like once every seven years. I have no idea if it's true or if she was just tricking me into trying vegetarables on a regular basis as I got older. She's like, I hope your taste buds change, right? Just tell them they change every seven years and he'll give it a shot. Well, I don't know, but what I do know is that Jesus changes our spiritual taste buds. We didn't want holiness. We didn't want prayer. We didn't want purity. We didn't want to read our Bibles. We didn't really want to come to church. Maybe we said we wanted these things, but we didn't really want these things because we were under the power of sin. But now we do. Why? Because He's changed our nature, He's changed our hearts. So he's freed us from the penalty of sin. He's freed us from the power of sin. And there's still more. Jesus' work has given us even more grace. We've been adopted through his work. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John 1, 12 and 13. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. 1 John 3, 1. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Romans 8, 14 through 16. Think about the privileges of our adoption into God's family. We have liberty. We have liberty through the work of Christ. We've been set free from all that once plagued us. Guilt. Sin. Death. The condemnation that comes from God's law. Everything. We've been freed. 
And this freedom changes the way that we think about service and obedience. We obey God, not begrudgingly, not with fear, but with eager hearts to please our Father and our Savior. We have liberty. We have new rights. We have new rights through the work of Christ. We now have, let this fall on you, a legitimate claim to all of the privileges and advantages that come with being part of Jesus' family. Romans says we are co-heirs with Jesus Christ. Ephesians says we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. Would I, if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. And take you to myself, that where I am, you may also be. And then third, we have a a holy boldness. Imagine you are about to meet a very important person. Let's say Winston Churchill. Let's just say he was alive, okay? My guess is that you would be way too intimidated to really enjoy the experience. You'd be so darn self-conscious, you couldn't even think or talk straight. You'd be like, it's good, it's good to meet you, sir. I'm so glad. Hey, oh, I look really... Like what you've done with the whole war. Um, really, really, really impressive. Oh, my goodness, I sound so stupid. Um, okay, so Winston... Did I call... I, hmm. And yet we know from historical accounts that in the thick of World War II, his grandchildren would burst into his room and he would stop what he was doing and he'd take him up on his lap and he'd say, Ah, what shall we do today? His grandchildren had boldness in his presence since they knew he was happy to see them. And so too it is with us and our Father in heaven. He is happy to see us. I want to read a long quote, and it's an analogy that sums up this whole section. Quote, Imagine you are called into the court of a good and powerful king. You are not looking forward to the experience because you have been an outlaw and a traitor your whole life. You have violated his laws and been an enthusiastic member of a rebel group that has sought to overthrow the crown. You have no legitimate defense and no reason to hope for mercy. But when you appear for trial, you are stunned to discover that the king loves you and has decided to punish his beloved son in your place. As a result, you are declared innocent and treated as if you were a perfectly faithful subject of the king. But there's more. Because this king also has power to change your heart, So he takes away your insane and suicidal desire to rebel against him and he replaces it with the love and loyalty for him. Because of the king's love for you, demonstrated clearly in the gift of his son, you never have to worry about finding yourself on the wrong end of his law again. 
But there's more. That's more than you could ever possibly expect to to demand, right? If that king merely let you go about your life from that point on, you would owe him your love and gratitude forever. But that's not nearly all that the king has in store for you. It's not enough for him to restore you to your status as a law-abiding citizen because he ends your trial by declaring that he has adopted you into his family. You are no longer a criminal. You are not even a subject anymore. Instead, you are now a child of the king. End quote. Look, I know that's an imperfect analogy. But it puts in simple terms the realities that Jesus has accomplished for us. Christian, God the Son took on flesh in order to accomplish all of this. God the Son left the glories of heaven came to earth, was rejected by men and crucified on the cross so that you could have all of this. And what's more, once you're his, once you've turned from your sin and trust in him, do you know what he actually wants? He wants a real an ongoing relationship with you. Do you think that it's by accident that Ephesians 5 describes the church's relationship with Jesus in terms of a marriage? What could be more intimate than a marriage? There is nothing more relationally close than a marriage. There is mutual care for one another. Mutual sharing with one another. Mutual interest in one another. Mutual pursuit of one another. Question. Do you think of your relationship with Jesus in this way? Do you think of your relationship with Jesus as a relationship? Let me tell you. He does not just want you to come to him once. Think of repentance and faith as your wedding day, okay? Think of repentance and faith as your wedding day. That's when you entered into covenant with Jesus. Well, that's just the beginning. That's that's just the start. From, From there, just think about a normal marriage. From there, there's the honeymoon, A brief time where everything's wonderful, hopefully, but you don't know each other really well. From there, there's there's life together, learning to navigate the, the challenging seasons together, enjoying the blessings of sweet seasons together. Marriage is about being together. And here's the wonderful part. In our relationship with Jesus, he is the perfect husband. He is never neglectful of us. He is never uninterested in time with us. 
He never sins against us. He always forgives us of our sin against Him. Further, He always pursues us. Even when we sin, no, especially when we sin. He comes after us to bring us back. And He comes after us to bring us back, not to chastise us, but to embrace us. Just think about it. If you had a husband like this, you'd want to get closer and closer and closer because he is just so good. Oh my goodness, you wouldn't be able to stop thinking about him and talking about him and looking forward to time with him. All of it. Believer, Jesus wants an intimate relationship with you. With little old you. And you may struggle with that idea. And that's understandable because it's a fantastic claim. Jesus, God the Son, desires friendship with you. What's so special about me? Answer, nothing. But that's what makes it all the more incredible. So how should you respond? First, a word to those of you who are here who aren't Christians. To you, I want you to know that Jesus Christ offers to be your friend this morning. The reason he left the glories of heaven and came to the earth was to call sinners to himself. He came to call blatant sinners to himself. Are you a blatant sinner? Have you done shameful, shameful things? He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He came to call moral sinners to himself. Are you a moral sinner? Up until this point in life, have you seen yourself as better than others, as one of the good people, as deserving God's approval? Well, Provided you come to see that all of that is a lie and you actually stand condemned, if anything, just merely by your pride, then you are now qualified to receive His grace because you finally know you need His grace. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you know both groups, the moral and the immoral, do you know both groups this morning? You can receive him this morning. There is nothing you have to do. There is no cleanup process. There is no specific level of guilt that you must reach before you felt guilty enough. Do you know yourself to be deserving of the judgment of God? Do you know Jesus to be a willing Savior to save you from your sin by virtue of His death and resurrection to take sin's penalty upon Himself? Then turn to Him and trust in Him. Come to Him, believe His promise for forgiveness and eternal life. Believe and be saved. And why wouldn't you? 
Why wouldn't you? Are you afraid that it might cost you the acceptance of your friends? Jesus is the best friend. Are you afraid that it might not be enjoyable? In his presence is fullness of joy. Are you afraid that you won't be able to leave your sin? He will empower you. You need only be willing. Are you afraid he won't accept you? Look at the woman at the well. Look at the woman who poured ointment on his feet. Look around the room at Christians that you know. He's accepted all of these moral and immoral sinners. Why wouldn't he accept you? Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. And church, to those of you who know him, to those of you who have embraced him by faith, my question for you is, how is your relationship these days? How is your relationship? Where are you at in your communion with Jesus Christ? Is it honeymoonish? So exciting. Is it good? You're working on things. Is it, is it rich and deep like a couple that's faithfully worked on their marriage for a long time and you're seeing the fruit of it through thick and thin? Or, Is it blah, like a couple who's forgotten that they love each other? Is it cold, like a couple who's not forgiven each other or stopped pursuing one another? Or is it it almost non-existent, like a couple who lives together but it's been so poor for so long that they're functionally more like roommates? Brothers and sisters, wherever it is, you can work on it. And here's the good news. Jesus is never not interested in you. He wants your relationship to flourish. He wants the empty embers to fan into flame. He wants not to scold you, but to embrace you. So wherever you are, how do you pursue your friendship with him? Several ways. First, by meditating on him. And I want you to know what meditation means. It actually doesn't mean emptying your mind. It means to fill your mind with truths about him. Meditate on all the ways in which Jesus is lovely. He is lovely in his person. He is lovely in his birth and incarnation. He is lovely in the way that he lived. He is lovely in the way that he died. He is lovely in all that he has done to save us. He is lovely in his glory. He is lovely in his care. He is lovely in his worship that he's appointed for us. He is lovely in his gifts. He is lovely in his judgment. Make it your goal. Every time you read your Bible, hear a sermon, sing a hymn, take the Lord's Supper, not to necessarily think, what do I need to do in response? But instead to think, oh, Jesus is so lovely. 
Do you know what that will do? It will draw your heart towards him. Number two, remember your sin and his grace. What do you do when you sin? How do you respond? I would suggest to you to go through a little spiritual exercise. Something like this. When you sin, I want you to, even if just mentally, I want you to take your sin and I want you to take it to the cross and I want you to remind yourself that Jesus died for this specific sin. Jesus paid the price for this specific sin. And if you have trouble believing that, then remember 1 John 1, 9 and 10. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, you don't have to do that in order to be forgiven of that sin. Jesus' death and resurrection and your faith in him, your union with him by faith, actually forgives you forever for all sin. But when you sin, your communion, your sense of his acceptance and love and grace is affected. And this way of just reminding yourself, ah, I don't have to let this sin keep me from friendship with Jesus Christ. I'm going to take it right to him. I'm going to lay it down to the cross and I'm going to remember I've been forgiven of that sin by your blood that was shed for me. This will remind you, brothers and sisters, that you're forgiven and this will stoke your love and affection for him. Next, unburden yourself with him. Isn't it wonderful to talk to a close friend? Especially when you're troubled. Someone who knows you and loves you and is going to hear you out. And who's going to tell you what you know you need to hear, even if it's hard. And, and yet you know at the end of the conversation that person is still going to love you when the conversation is over. That's Jesus. Can I just tell you there's no such thing as oversharing with Jesus. You know, even with the best of friends, you're like, oh, can I? I don't know if I could or should say this. And sometimes there are things you shouldn't. But you don't have to worry about that with Jesus. You can't overshare. Unburden yourself with him. What a friend we have in Jesus, all our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Next, by obeying him. Brothers and sisters, there is no joy or delight in Jesus Christ apart from obedience to Jesus Christ. If you have an allergic reaction of being told that you have to do something by anyone, including Jesus, you must lay that down 
and happily submit yourself to His good authority and actually obey Him in real life. There is no way to be happy in Jesus unless you obey Jesus. And when you obey Jesus, trust me, you will be happy in Jesus. And then finally, I want to encourage you that you have to orient your life around Him. You have to orient life around Him. You know, in a marriage, Ephesians 5 tells us that the husband is the leader and the wife is the helper. Life is is really about coming alongside the one whom God has given you as your leader and being about his vision for your family and your relationship and your lives. Why do you think that is? Because as believers, we are to come alongside and say, Jesus, my life is really about your mission and your vision and what you want my life to look like, and I'm going to follow you. Jesus didn't just come to befriend us so that we could be his friends. Jesus came to befriend us so that we could join him in his mission to make disciples, which means that in order for us to truly be happy in him, we have to orient his life, orient our life around him, his mission, and his church. There's no way you can be happy in Jesus unless you orient your life around his church as well. Because at church, isn't that where we are reminded of how glorious he is? At church, isn't that where we are reminded to live on mission for him? At church, isn't that we are he- where we are helped to unburden ourselves with him? And so orient your life around him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I give you thanks for the grace of your Son. I gave you thanks for his gracious person. Grace, thanks for his gracious work. Thanks for the fact, Lord Jesus, that you desire a relationship with your beloved. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us to respond to you by evermore and always happily pursuing you, knowing that you are always pursuing us. In your name we pray. Amen.